Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by SeatGeek. That is our presenting sponsor for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on NBA tickets. Use promo code BSNBA. I hope those Indiana Pacer fans use that promo code on Monday night and got $20 off the last second ass kicking you got. Oh, yeah. Terry Rozier at the buzzer. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek. Com. We're also brought to you by the Ringer's YouTube channel. We stepped up our game in 2017 with weekly videos like Cousin Sal's Best Bet, Slow Newsday, NBA Desktop, No BS, Table Reads, Director's Commentary, and Captain Morgan's Make Believe Casino, as well as our video podcasts and mini-movies like Take Hunter, Ringer 360, and Quaytheism coming in 2018, a weekly video mailbag from none other than me. Oh, yeah, as well as Mallory Out of a Hat a series you haven't seen yet, and a slew of other new digital shows. Don't miss anything. Just go to theringer.com slash video, or even better, do it for me for the holidays, because I never ask for anything. All I've done is given you free podcasts this whole time. Please subscribe to our channel at youtube.com slash ringer. And speaking of podcasts, I am going on One Shining Podcast with Titus and Tate. And we have a gimmick that we're all very excited about. So um, keep an eye out for that one. One Shining Podcast. A college basketball podcast, but a little bit more. This one uh, is a pretty good idea. Coming up, Brian Curtis, Ben Thompson. But first, Pearl Jam. All right, Brian Curtis is on the line. Ben Thompson from the Stratechery blog coming up in a little bit. I want to talk to Brian first, ringer editor at large, as well as somebody who wrote about John Skipper yesterday, my old boss, who um, decided or announced yesterday that he is um, stepping down. He resigned as I think he'd been in charge for five years um, to deal with a substance issue. Uh, I would say it was one of the most shocking announcements that I've read. I couldn't believe it. I was stunned. It took I didn't even want to say anything on Monday's podcast because I wanted to make sure um, I had all the info and, and I, I was kind of shook. Um, Brian, what was your reaction? That it was, you know, in the shittiest year possible at ESPN ended in the worst possible way. Yeah. I just don't, I don't know, I don't know how to say it in, in, in the most depressing way, like you said. I mean, here's, you know, they've been through the layoff thing, the president attacking them, all the various things we've talked about, written about this year, and then all of a sudden, you know, your guy just resigns on a Monday morning. I, I just, I, I, I'm still in shock. I'm still trying to figure out what happened and why the timing was when it was, because, you know, he spoke in front of all the talent on Wednesday um, in Bristol, and... Uh, and was obviously involved in the Disney Fox deal, I'm sure, because they're getting all these RSNs. He was at the Lomachenko fight on Saturday night. But my guess is, um, you know, the way it was handled that day in the morning and the statement that Iger gave, and then um, from everybody's reaction, no, it seems like by all reports, nobody knew this was coming. I think Skipper probably knew this was coming for a few days, a few weeks. I don't know. Um, and... You know, your your mind goes to well, why wouldn't you just take a leave of absence? I've never heard of, never heard of somebody resigning to deal with the substance issue. And my guess is, 
that uh, he just needed to get out of this job and was done with it and could not could not see a world in which um, that he, he could do this job and feel healthy and, and good about the life he was leading. Um, is there any other takeaway than that, unless there's more to the story? No, and I'm just, I mean, I'm just amazed at the juxtaposition, like you said, that the message, the specific message when he flew everybody up to Bristol last week was, you know, don't believe what you read in the press about ESPN. You know, yeah. we're still in a great position, and and the future isn't scary. I think he had a, he had a specific line where he said that, right? The future's not scary. It's going to be great, and I want to lead this company uh, into a great future. And five days later, he's gone. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I I've been lucky enough to have some people have a huge impact in my life, and he was he was definitely one of the top ones, and he was an incredible boss to me, and he gave me so many awesome chances at ESPN. He, you know, not just Grant winning 30 for 30, but just blowing out my column and putting me in ESPN magazine and always being ready to hear my next idea. I had ideas that people never heard because they weren't good enough or because ESPN couldn't make them. But he he was always pushing and pushing and pushing um, to innovate. And, you know, the way things ended for me the last year um, – Definitely contentious. There's no question. I, I think he, maybe 15 years was t- was too long to stay. But I always felt, and I think he feels this way too, that I I never judged my entire stay there by everything that happened the last year. Um, I always look at the at all the great things we're able to do. I've always spoken about him respectfully since, and and you know maybe I disagreed with some of the decisions, especially with how they handled the Grantland thing after I left. But um, but I just have a lot of respect for that guy. And I was really feeling for him yesterday because I think that's a really difficult thing to, you know, just put yourself out there like that, knowing that there's also going to be a lot of speculation, especially considering the climate we're in. I think most people's minds went to the same place. Oh, he's trying to get in front of something. Well, what if he's not? What if he just it was time for him to leave? So we'll find out. I'm sure more info will come out um, over these next few days. But I think... He had a dramatic, dramatic, dramatic top five of anyone who worked at ESPN impact on that company. I also don't think the last couple of years he, you know, was certainly not to the same standards that he showed when uh, the first 10 years I was in the company. And I think there there was a lot of mistakes, big and small, that were made um, on his watch near the end. And there the company is trying to rebound and fix some of the some of the fallout from some of those mistakes. None of them were gigantic but when you start adding them up, you've written about them a bunch of times. Um, we've talked about it on this podcast a bunch of times. It was a company that just seemed – it was a company that was at the same time massively successful but also trying to figure out what it was. And now it's starting to feel like it's figuring out what it was, but I'm still not sure. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think what was striking about those mistakes was they were often the exact opposite mistake. You know, you pull this guy Robert Lee off a football game, and that seems to be ESPN, you know, bending over backwards not to offend anybody on the planet, right? We just don't want to offend anybody. Yeah. One person may be angry. And then, what is it, a couple months later, he pulls in the Barstool guy, which seems to be, let's, you know, risk offending a bunch of people, even inside our own company, so that we can get this new audience. Yeah. And it's like, the, and then that blows up, and it's like the opposite mistake, and yeah, it was. You're right. It wasn't anything that was just like gigantic, but there was lots of little things like that. 
And right. at the time, I, mean, I think the reaction inside the company is just, well, what's going on? What is this? You know, and then you do Barstool for one episode and then pull the plug and just create a weird war with those guys who were all celebrating yesterday when he was, when he went down. And I just, I didn't, uh, I it's didn't just like puzzling, that. puzzling. I think, you know, as somebody that's been lucky enough to, to lead a couple different pretty cool enterprises, um, it's it sounds like a cliche, but it's true. You're you really are as good as the people that you put around you. And you know, when he took over in 2012, he had a chance to really blow up and reframe ESPN. And and there were people that were probably two positions too high. There were people that had been there too long. Um, it, it wasn't the right group of people around him, and the right thing to do would have been to blow it up and really make some moves. I think he waited too long. And I, and I think that was one of the reasons why the company stumbled in a couple of ways uh, over the last few years. I just don't think he had the right group of people around him. I think over the last year or so, putting Connor in charge of content, who I obviously worked with um, a long time and is a really smart guy, um, Burke Magnus, raising him, elevating him, putting more in the hands of Justin Connolly, who I think is the successor. I think he would be my, my bet if I had to bet anybody. But you're starting to see it's it's a younger kind of more ready for where ESPN has to go as a company group around him. And I actually think he would have been in a better position to succeed these next couple of years, and now he's gone. And what's crazy is there is no successor. And you could argue – it was Machiavellian by him to always prevent having that one successor who could jump in and take his job or always be breathing down his neck. Or you could argue they just didn't have the internal candidate. But when you read these stories, I'm sure you've read all of them, and who knows? People, nobody has any info. This just happened. There's no way to actually know who the successors are. None of them are ready for the job. None of them have no. been like any, none of them have remotely the credentials or the work history that would suggest that they could take this job over. When Skipper took that job, first of all, he's the best content guy they've ever had. Um, he had run a whole bunch of different things, and he was ready for that job. And he was actually older than Bodenheimer. You know, um, they don't have that person this time. And the the rub is, it's the most dangerous time in the history of the company, right? That's right. That's that's the rub because you need a guy in here who understands content. But at the same time, can solve the more important "how do we make money?" question. Yeah. You know, and you know, we've seen two rounds of layoffs. I saw like the new publisher of the New York Times the other day saying we're not going to have any more layoffs to get to a number. Have you heard that announcement from ESPN? You know, if you come in there, you have to lay off maybe maybe lay off more people. Right. Um, you know, do all these painful things and you know shrink more. You know, kind of rein in your ambitions even more in certain places, and that just. That's just a nightmare job. Do you think you saw the outpouring on Twitter yesterday? For him. Yeah. Was it because he was a content guy, quote unquote, because he was such he was so devoted to the good stuff there, and that's fairly rare in television executives. I think part of it is he's a genuine guy, and anybody who had a real dealing with him um, had some sort of moment with him where they felt like a real my boss is a real person. Now, whether they eventually had dealings with him down the road that 
that was one of the things that would be frustrating about it is if they felt like that, like he veered from that in some way, then it hurt even more because he was he was such a real person and a genuine guy. I think that was one thing. The other thing is he genuinely cared about doing good stuff, and it wasn't lip service. He's, you know. I think 30 for 30 is a good example, and I've discussed this before on the pod, but that was not something that I I just don't think any other network would have done that just as it was conceived. It was conceived by a sports columnist on the Internet and who then developed it with this 30-year-old guy who was this mid-level dude at ESPN Films who had never really been in charge of anything. And we were outsourcing 30 films to all these people. And... They were, it was going to cost $15 million. No, Nobody would do that. Nobody would do that idea, but he wanted to do it because he thought it was cool. And it was the same thing with Grantland. He thought the idea was cool, and he liked the thought of you know, getting a little more literate on the Internet and taking some chances and finding young talent. He was really – that was something that we really clicked on. I was really obsessed with – I think there's a bunch of good young people out there that we can find and put under one umbrella, and he wanted that more than anybody. Um so I, I think everybody had their own moment with him. I, I think you saw Levitard yesterday. Yeah. Um, and that was all genuine, too, because Levitard's somebody that was this local guy in Miami who was, was kind of the guy in Miami and then started writing for ESPN, the magazine, and the magazine loved him. And him and Skipper just became friends. And Skipper became convinced that Levitard should start pushing himself and start doing more and more. And, and eventually Levitard got set up with this whole thing in Miami that, uh, you know, it's pretty cool, pretty multimedia. He doesn't write as much anymore, but he's got a radio show and he's got this whole crew and he's in the Clevender Hotel. And that was all Skipper who, for two reasons, he liked Levitard, but also understood pretty early that ESPN just couldn't go after white people as an audience that they had to have something for everybody. And he thought the Latino audience was, was, was just being underserved. And, you know, he really did think about diversity and, and, and just how to grow ESPN's audiences. I don't know. I I thought everything he did came from a pretty genuine place. Was that, was that your feeling from afar? Yeah, for sure. And also, when you talk about somebody like Levitard, it's all these like legacy of really unlikely TV stars. Yeah. And radio stars and internet stars and, you know, print stars who are really big. And if you and I, you know, had picked them out of, you know, had gone to a lineup and said, which of these people, we might not have picked the same people just because of the way TV is. Right. Um, or TV was. And yeah, ESPN looks pretty amazing in that regard. And looks really diverse, and and what you said about the quality thing too. You know, it didn't have to go down that path, right? Um, it's amazing to me that what seven months ago we were talking about the big giant war in sports television was Jamie Horowitz versus John Skipper. Neither of them are there anymore, by the way. That's amazing. And one was saying, "Look, this is over. You know, you can't do a news division. You can't. This is about debate." And and Skipper was saying, implicitly and explicitly, "No, no, we have to. We have to keep a lot of this up. You know, we can't. We can't abandon it completely." I think that, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Keep going. No, but I just, I mean, I think, and I think that is not, not, you know, they had to make a lot of cuts, um, and they did make a lot of cuts, and a lot of them were really painful. But I think they mostly, they, in a lot of ways, I'll say, they stood their ground on that on that question. I think one of the biggest reasons we liked each other was 
I'm talking about him like he's past tense. He's obviously still alive, and I'm I'm sure he'll do more stuff. But I mean, when I worked there, one of the reasons that we liked each other was we were both super competitive. And you know, probably my favorite skipper year was 2013 when Fox started doing all this rumbling that Fox was coming. Here comes Fox. You know what? Watch out for these guys. And and he just took it personally. It was like, all right, and and. At that point, he had a war chest. They didn't understand that the subs were going backwards. And he was just like, I'm I'm not letting Fox gate in foothold. And it turned into this little mini bidding war, almost like how the Red Sox and Yankees are doing. He's just keeping people, and he goes after Oberman. And um, it was all competitiveness. It went, I don't even know if it was a good strategy. He was just like, fuck these guys. I'm not, I'm not getting, letting these guys get a foothold. Fuck them. And made a bunch of moves. And... I don't know. He had a swagger to him during that stretch that I, that I just really resonated with me because I wanted to be on the best team, you know, and and he did too. So, uh, yeah. Are, when you're talking to people over there, are you hearing a "What do we do now?" vibe out of that place, or is everybody still positive? I think it's going to take a few days to digest everything because what happens when you hear something like this is. You don't know how long it's been going on. You start thinking back to every interaction you had with them. I know I did. Um, if this was for years, how many years? Um, was he in pain? What was it? What's going on? You, you you have to think all that stuff, and it's human nature, you know. But I think I think what's fascinating is five years ago, you look at who took over that company when, when Bodenheimer stepped down and Skipper comes in and the regime that he kind of had in place and pretty much all those people are gone. Like Sean Bratches was his basically the head of sales. He's out. Um, Marie Donahue and John Kosner were like Skipper's two lieutenants. They're not there. John Walsh was his conciliary. He's not there. John Wildhack was got moved to run production. He was terrible. Um, he's, he's not there. And the only person who survived incredibly out of, out of like the, uh, kind of the cabinet other than people that nobody would know, but is Norby Williamson, who the joke was they, they couldn't get rid of him. And now he says more power than ever. He's, he's in charge of all their afternoon lineups. He's the little finger of ESPN. It's incredible. But, uh, <laughs> I, I just can't fathom the story. I got to be honest. A few things shock me, but I just can't fathom this, that they don't even have a successor in place. Think about that. If this was a sports team and you just didn't have a coach and GM and the and the team was like, yeah, we're going to take 90 days to look at it. <laughs> be like, what? It's free agency. Wait, wait, wait a second. Who, who's making the picks? Like that's that's what this feels like a little bit. But on top of it, you have thousands of people who are working for ESPN whose lives are being impacted by this every day. Absolutely, I couldn't. I couldn't believe how many, how many people they flew up for that for that conference last week. Yeah, that meeting. I mean, you're like, oh wait, because we keep hearing uh, people are, people are leaving, people are leaving, people are being laid off, and like they still have so many people who are counting on them to figure this thing out. And I said to me, you know what, another thing about his last couple of years, that really his whole time, but especially the last couple of years, was this nostalgia problem of ESPN. Yeah. I don't know how you quantify this, but just everybody, every time something goes wrong, people just say, you know what, oh, it's just not the ESPN I grew up with, you know? It's not Dan and Keith. It's not Boomer. It's not the sports center I once knew. And it just like feels like that hangs over everything, you know, and it's not fair. It's not fair to the people who are there. Um, 
but it just feels like that the one thing I read over and over again is this whole thing about nostalgia, you know. You did a great job fighting that. You wrote about the the demise of the highlight guy for the ringer. Excellent piece that coincidentally we didn't know the skipper stuff was gonna happen, obviously, but you no. were writing about ESPN this week. And you're right. And it's like anything else where in your head it was greater than it actually was. You write so eloquently about the media, and there's nobody like you. I hate to I hate to make you uncomfortable and praise you, but there's nobody like you're, you right now writing, accomplished, writing about sports media. Has is has it been too gossipy this year for you? Do you like this stuff? No, I mean I don't I don't love I don't love it that every every you know four weeks Sean Fennessy sending me an email saying how do we write about X person who just resigned, got fired, or got laid off. Yeah, or you should know, or should we should we cover this basically? Yeah, <laughs> or the executive Game of Thrones stuff, you know. Which yeah. I mean, Skipper's kind of in a different category, but there's just that that stuff is, is less interesting to me than seeing the people, the men and women who are doing this, and the you know the ideas and all the stuff that goes into that beat. Yeah, I, I would say this has been a really gut wrenching year, and, and knowing a lot of the people as we do, yeah, who get caught up in this stuff. You know who are really good, and then they're just now they're in some, they're looking for the next thing, or they're getting paid to do nothing, or, or whatever. You know, you and I both have dozen plus people, yeah. at least. Were you surprised by the outpouring of affection for Skipper yesterday? It sounds like you were a little bit. Um, you know, no, I knew people really liked him, and in some cases loved him, and I knew I knew he was really popular with my set, which is, you know, more writerly people, more on the writer side, ESPN mag side, those kind of people. But yeah, I was still, I mean, I was still, I was still struck by it. I really was. I don't, I don't, how many people, you know, how many, especially because it's, you know, I know he's more than just a TV executive. When I think of TV executives, it's just such a piranha business, you know? Yeah. And the people who quote unquote love you are the people you, you have given jobs to most recently and promoted most recently, and everybody else kind of low-grade hates you. <laughs> right. And Skipper, for for running a, a company that large, had a lot of people who really, really loved him. And then, like, Jamel Hill, right? I mean, look what she just went through. And I, and, I, and I know for a fact that that's genuine what she was saying on Twitter yesterday, is that she, you know, after all she's been through, she, she and Skipper, she still had a ton of admiration for him. And they were still good on whatever level you can be good after all that happened. Yeah, I mean... The the thing, the two things that stick in my craw probably from my time there was one that we didn't have a phone call before, you know, it it was decided to uh, leak it to the New York Times that they weren't renewing my contract. When we both knew it was headed that way, I just felt like I had uh, given the career I had. I I just think we should have announced that together. Um, I got over it. And you know, as the as the time passes, you start looking at the good stuff and not the bad stuff. I think is is the human yeah. nature. Yeah, and the four or three and change or whatever it was, fabulous years we had doing that. Yeah, which, as you say, was a, was a skipper thing. You know. Yeah. At at some level, you know, with his with his blessing, you know, that was that was that was great. <laughs> I think the best thing about working for him and something that I've tried to. I guess the right word is adopt, but definitely something that I think anybody who works with me will at least admit this is true. 
Skipper always was down for a good idea. And whether he was going to actually do it or not, you know, he, that was a different story. But he always wanted to hear him. And he always wanted people to feel like they could have ideas and they could pitch ideas. And no idea was crazy enough for him. And I think that's a really good quality as a boss. And, you know, they, he's the only person I've ever worked for in my life that was wired that way. And I learned a lot from it, you know. And I think I, I would argue there's not a lot of bosses just in general in the creative circles that just think that way and that's the way you have to think because once you start thinking that way everybody that works for you starts maybe not 100% thinking that way but at least they know like if they have a good idea there's a chance and I think uh you know I never would have known that if I if I didn't work for him I just wouldn't have realized it so for me that's that's his legacy and I think um for for the world as a whole, you know, he oversaw ESPN during the craziest decade it had, right? This is the craziest decade ESPN's had. They're at the absolute top of the mountain and look unassailable at the end of 2013. And then their business flipped on them and they had to figure out real solutions for it. And it seems like they figured out at least some, but I still think it's going to be a rocky next couple of years. And now if the wrong person takes play, takes charge, it could really snowball badly the other way, but and we, and we can also agree. Iger seems like he's staying now forever, right? The, the guy who. <laughs> <laughs> you mean we don't have to apologize to Clay Travis because Iger's not running for president? Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't sound like it. Yeah, no. So just just so, just so we're clear, no apology because I think we were getting hounded on Twitter for a while for that one. Oh, were we? Yeah. I missed that. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. You, oh, you wow. Missed, sorry, you missed oh, that. Yeah. Wow, what a bullet dodged. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, any uh, <laughs> sit here? Any 2018 predictions? Who? I'm 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 fascinated what the six o'clock sports center was is going to look like. Speaking of ESPN, well, I don't. Nobody's written this. They took down all the stuff. I tweeted it the other day. Oh, you did? You tweeted it? Yeah. It's all gone. What happened to, what happened to Stu Scott? What, what happened, happened to, to everybody? Jordan? It would have been like if they went in and just completely stripped the Grantland studio and we were just doing it in an electrical closet. Unbelievable. <laughs> they That was such a big part of the identity of the show is they were so proud of that studio and the pictures they picked and they just took off them. So obviously they just want those two to leave. I just, I mean, it's, it seems like it's untenable, right? It's just not going to Yeah, that's a pretty work. big F you. Well, and especially now if Norby... If there if there's no nobody uh, if there's no real boss in place, or there's a temporary boss, Norby's gonna you know he's in charge of that whole side. Who's gonna stop him? They just I just feel they never had somebody a producer that was on that show who could you know take what they do well and translate it into something that would make the network happy. You know they didn't have that person they could lean on and. You know, maybe if it's just going to go back to a generic six o'clock highlight show at this point in time, and mm, you know, great. set up the night's games and stuff that we were doing with Lindsay Zarniak mm. 12 months ago. I don't know. Do you think he's going to turn, know. do you think he's going to turn Arya and Sansa against each other? <laughs> I don't think that's, are we talking about, is that Michael and Jamel? <laughs> No, I don't know. That's not it's another. It's my second little finger, little finger uh, joke of the oh, I got of you. the column. Yeah, I got you. Sorry, I just I was just trying to put all the characters together. Well, if it was the Game of Thrones part, then he that's is what he would be trying to do, and they would figure it out and then get him back. 
I was going to say we know what happened with uh, to Littlefinger. Yeah, the whole thing. They just have to fake being mad at each other for a couple of days and make it work. Yeah, that part's crazy. I do think uh, they need to figure out how to bring in more talent and people that can move the needle. It's different between, oh, we have talent and actually having people who move the needle. And mm-hmm. um, whoever the next boss point. is has to find talent. Skipper found talent. That's what he did. And your point about, like, no, you know, give me ideas, right? Yeah. We are, if nothing else, we are the market for ideas right now. We need to figure stuff out. And you know, people who are underemployed or, or, or ambitious and want the next thing, you, you're first in line. You tell me what, what we should do. We've, I forgot to mention with Skipper that the, I do think he played a huge role in soccer kind of taking off in this country to whatever degree it took off as, as a no, TV sport. It was a big passion of his from the moment he, uh, he had any sort of say. And I remember in 2009, I went to Mexico and, uh, to watch the U.S.-Mexico game in, in um, the, the famous stadium there, Azteca. And we went for three days and we were in Mexico city in some hotel compound that you weren't allowed to leave because the security guards and, um, just drinking these weird tomato juice, uh, whatever those weird Mexican, like bloody Mary type drinks were and all, whatever the house things, bunch of soccer people. And Skipper was really adamant that soccer in the next decade was going to take off in the world cups. This is before I think we, we found out that we weren't going to have the world cup. Um, but was just really passionate about it. We went to Azteca. America lost. It was the craziest crowd I've ever seen. And as we were leaving, they were throwing stuff at us in the car. And Skipper got mad. I thought he was going to go like after the people that were throwing the stuff at us. I was like, <laughs> I was like, this is the boss I want. My boss is ready to fight for his crew. Uh, but it was just a great trip, and it, and he's just really loved sports, you know. And I think whoever gets that job has to be wired that way. And that was the reason Mark Shapiro didn't work when he was the head of ESPN. He didn't, he wasn't crazy about sports like that, you know. Bodenheimer loves sports and Skipper loves sports and um, hopefully the next person will too. Did we cover everything? Absolutely. I think we did. Okay. What's your next piece? Oh. Um, I got some more year-end stuff. Okay, good. Particularly interested in uh, sports writers and social media. I'll say oh. that. Okay, you might want to hear Jim Miller's new podcast with uh, there's, my, there's my tease, absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, I got interviewed for that. I, it's it's actually really good. I was glad I got. Uh, I was glad I was involved. Good job. The Origins podcast, Jim Miller, uh, Brian Curtis. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. All right, we're gonna call Ben Thompson first. If you've ever seen anything we've done in my office on Instagram, which is at spitguy33, you probably noticed how nice my posters look. Our friends at FrameBridge framed everything in there. FrameBridge's experts custom frame my items in days, not weeks or months. They delivered my finished pieces ready to hang. Go to FrameBridge.com. You can upload digital photos, Instagram, whatever you want. Their designers will even help you pick the perfect frames. Instead of the hundreds you'd pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39. All shipping is free. Probably won't be able to do this in time for Christmas for guaranteed delivery, but that doesn't mean you can't do it at any point over the next 12 months. FrameBridge is the best. The framing and packaging they put in their stuff is incredible. One of my favorite companies. Go to FrameBridge.com. Use promo code BS. You save an additional 15% off your first order. Again, FrameBridge.com. Promo code BS. And once again, don't forget about 
the Ringer's YouTube channel, and all the stuff we have coming down the road. Just go to youtube.com slash the ringer or ringer or the ringer.com slash video and get all our stuff. We have some good stuff, including my video mailbag. Come on. What's more fun than a video mailbag? Nothing. All right. We're calling Ben Thompson. On the line right now from one of my favorite sites, Stratechery, which I was calling Stratechery until he corrected me the last time he was on this podcast. How do I know? I can't, I can barely read. Uh, ben Thompson, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, well, I mean, I'm I'm dreading my next experience watching Jason Kidd murder the Bucks, but uh, in a couple of minutes. But other than that, I'm doing great. Yeah, we. So you have you have your at Ben Thompson Twitter feed, and then there's another Twitter feed called No Tech Ben, where you just complain about Jason Kidd every night. It's a it's like you're two <laughs> different people. It's 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 really really annoying, which is why I created a separate account. I, I had mercy on on those following me. I want to be able to complain without without limit. Yeah, I wish Haralabob would do that with Bitcoin. I wish he would create a separate Haralabob Bitcoin feed and just leave the Haralabob feed for NBA. A lot of stuff going on with Disney this month, and this is even before uh, what happened with John Skipper yesterday. You've been writing about this Disney and Fox merger for a while. You had the same reaction I had. I had a reaction, and then when I usually I read you, and if you confirm my reaction, I feel really proud of myself. I thought this was. An incredible deal for Disney. Now, I'm saying that when it gets to what is sixty billion or whatever the hell the final number is, I have no context what that is. I know in the NBA, if you paid five hundred million dollars for LeBron, I would be able to put that into some sort of context. With this, I can't. But basically, what they're trying to do here is create their own Netflix competitor and to have that Fox library added to the Disney library. Um, that's a now a realistic thing. What was the big takeaway for you when you looked at that deal with, oh, this is smart. I love this. It was it was exactly that. I mean, the what Netflix came along and did. You know, it, originally everyone viewed it as just another another outlet, another channel where they could sell their stuff. I mean, they're spending all this money to create this content. If we can sell it to one more place, I think we talked about it once on the podcast earlier this year about yeah. making thirty for thirty and sell it to Netflix, and you feel great about it, and you don't realize that Netflix is getting this sort of evergreen content because the nature of content for Netflix is very different. They're not just interested in sort of the first run. They're interested in building a library so that when you go there, you'll stay there. And and it's attractive to all kinds of people who are interested in all kinds of stuff. And the problem is that Disney was based, Disney and all the other you know studios were basically arming a competitor to their best friend, which was the cable companies. Yeah. Because the cable companies basically had this sort of monopoly on in-home entertainment. And then Disney could come along and say, well, if you want people to to sign up, you have to have sports, for example, or you have to have the Disney Channel, and we can charge a really high price for that. And Netflix is there saying, well, you don't have to get cable. You could just watch us instead. And that started playing out, and, and Disney was really stuck with this sort of incredibly profitable, really attractive you know, model, which, by the way, Disney made a great deal. Remember, 20 years ago, they bought Capital Cities and ABC, which included – ESPN at the time so they were already like they bought into this game ahead of everyone else the first time yeah and this is almost them catching up where instead of having that cable company in the middle and you're kind of like just using them to get money from customers and then taking all the money they have to go directly to customers they have to get people to sign up for their service directly and that means having more content it means having exclusive content and the best way to have lots of your own exclusive content is to own it all and you're also you're hurting a, a competitor which is nice but I, 
You know, I look at this what, where they were five years ago. We've talked about this in this pod. I've talked about this on other pods. Hey, ESPN was doing so well. You, you, you basically are trying to protect the lead you have instead of figuring out all these different ways to grow the lead. The last couple of years, some of the different, you know, the fallbacks they've had and the way some of their competitors have risen and competitors they didn't even realize they were going to have um, made them kind of rethink their strategy on everything. And this was always the best idea. I never understood this when I was there, why why they didn't have their own version of whatever that they could put 30 for 30 and whatever else they wanted. It was always basically like in 2009, 2010, ESPN Classic was kind of the the playground that we always looked at and we would send memos for. Here's what could this be a sports movie channel? What is this? This channel that they've it seems like they're going to create now with this library um that Disney's going to create. Not only is it a Netflix competitor, it it might actually beat Netflix. The Disney library combined with the Fox library, it, this is more than a competitor. I would put them 5 years from now as kind of the favorite. What do you think? I think that it's a it's going to be a two horse race. Like if this goes through and if it's approved, and obviously there's going to be a lot of sort of antitrust questions about this. But one of the you know sort of arguments why it should be allowed is Netflix is is in such a dominant position right now because you know it's hard looking back four or five years like when Disney sold all their stuff to Netflix in 2012. You could see the outlines of how Netflix could sort of take over everything, but it wasn't really apparent then. But but everything sort of played out as as you might have expected it and. And if you play that forward in, in another five years, five, ten years, Netflix is this sort of monster that's just buying everything. No one can resist it even more than they are today. And it's yeah. already sort of that case in Hollywood. And, and well, wait, hold case, on. Wait a second, though. They, so in 2012, did Netflix know this was going to happen or was this dumb luck? No, this has been Netflix's plan. I mean, the, what the, what they've done from the beginning is they've taken this this sort of sideways approach to content where they get they, they served a problem that no one was serving, which was people wanted to watch movies and not worry about late fees, and they were movie hounds, and they gave them DVDs, right? And they could do that because DVDs, fair use, you, there was the second use doctrine. You couldn't charge for them a second time. And so they built up a customer base, and they leveraged that customer base into, into the first streaming deal, which is with Stars, And... I think we talked about this last time, but the idea with Stars was Netflix. It was so different because instead of only having one of the movies available, whatever Stars was showing on TV, yeah. Netflix had all of them available immediately, and that was such a sort of like mind fuck in, a way, <laughs> in right. the way you like think about content and what matters as far as that stuff goes. And they got more and more customers, and then they started buying more content and paying more for content. And people were like, "Oh, Netflix is going to buy content." Well, Netflix just pulled out the checkbook, and these Hollywood guys that are so used to will sell to anyone who will buy our stuff. They they gave it to Netflix, and meanwhile, Netflix starts investing in their original content, and that original content served two purposes. One, it was a differentiated stuff that you wanted to get to it was a reason to sign up for Netflix and then two as we're seeing now it built up a base so that when these guys finally woke up and started pulling their stuff from Netflix it didn't matter nearly as much as it would have mattered five or six years ago and what Netflix has is this huge customer base they're over 100 million uh, 100 million subscribers now and they're all over the world so they can leverage this stuff all over the place and they just pull and they pull out the checkbook and they buy more stuff which makes their product more attractive which makes them more customers which makes their checks bigger and they're all doing this buying against the future like they're taking on a ton of debt to to finance these shows but it's it's playing out because it's being made up the customers they're acquiring and it's this virtuous cycle that's going on if it keeps going on as it is in 10 years they're going to be just 
dominant over everyone. It's going to be the bundle for everything except for except for sports. And now there really is, if this goes deal goes through, a viable counterpoint to that. So I think the future is not that Netflix is doomed by any means, but rather that if this goes through, it'll be Netflix and Disney, and then sports will kind of be on the side of a separate thing. We'll see if it sticks with Disney or not. And maybe possibly a, a third. Now, now everybody who's left out of Netflix or this whole Disney slash Fox app has to figure out how to create their own app, which odds are it'll be a disaster. But my guess is that other people will now join forces and try to come up with the third I, I, one. I don't think so. I don't. I don't, I don't think it's going to be possible. I mean, it's. You asked why didn't Disney do this before? The reason they do it before is because one, it's really hard. It, just to do it in general. I mean, Disney has the best brand and all that sort of stuff, so they have some of the tools in place, but it's hard from a technical perspective, which is why they bought BAM Media, the, the MLB streaming service. Right. But then also, or the technology behind it, I should say. But also, the other issue is it, it costs you a lot of money. Like, to pull your content from Netflix costs money. To compete with cable, which Disney is setting themselves up to do, is to hurt themselves. Like, they make so much money still today from the cable bundle to put out a service where you have a reason to not sign up for cable because you're signing for Disney, you are basically hurting yourself. And that is a really, really hard thing to do. And Disney, to their immense credit, is well down the road to where they're going to do that. And that will put them in a better place for 10 years from now. But it might put them in a worse place for a year or two from now. And all these other guys, all these other studios, Paramount or Universal or, or whatever it might be, they're probably going to end up just selling to Netflix and selling to Disney. And, and it's not going to be as good of a business as it was today, but they'll still make money. It's just going to be much less money than they would have they would have otherwise. I guess, uh, sorry, just jump in. It, jump in, I interrupted myself. If, <laughs> if there is a third one, it, is pro- it, it probably would be universal. And I could actually see Hulu ending up with Comcast after this all sort of shakes out. If there is a third one, that's who it will be. But I suspect it will be the big two and, and everyone else. So you, you, you interrupted yourself and you stepped on what my big <laughs> point was going to be. I think the third one's going to be Hulu. And if you look at who owns it right now, Walt Disney owns 30%. Fox owns 30%. Now, I don't know if that was that in this deal. I don't know. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It so is. Disney, Disney will own 60% if, if, if it goes through. Comcast owns 30% through NBC Universal, and then Time Warner owns 10%. Would it now? They could basically just cock block everybody else on Hulu if they, oh, if they basically have the majority with those two things. Or. They could sell the sixty percent to them and use some of that money to to make uh, the Disney Fox Netflix competitor better, and basically dare NBC and Universal. My whole thing is, I don't think it matters if we have two, three, four, or five of these because people are going to pay. People are definitely going to pay for Disney slash Fox, and they're definitely going to pay for Netflix. And if there's a third one, they'll pay for that too. So I think something happens with Hulu. Hulu doesn't just stay this way. Something happens. That it's probably, I mean, not to get too into too much into the nitty gritty, but that might be how they solve the sort of antitrust questions around this deal, where that might end up being the deal they make with the with the U.S. government, where we will spin off Hulu. And again, Comcast is the most obvious buyer of that to sort of like make this deal go through. And I don't think that will be. I don't think Disney will feel that bad about it because they're clear they want to build their own service. One, 
And two, having two different services that are both about entertainment generally really doesn't make any sense. Like you, you, there is still value that comes from a bundle because different people want different things. If you can charge all of them the same price, and that's how cable works today. And what's going to happen? You just kind of mentioned, oh, people will buy this, they'll buy this, they'll buy this. People are going to end up paying about the same amount that they pay for cable TV today. Like it's just going to be organized totally differently, and that's not a surprise. Like that, I've been writing that's going to happen in the long run. The amount people pay for entertainment is going to stay about this it's going to shake out to be about the same just going to be organized totally differently right and that now we didn't mention amazon prime yet they're 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 i'm sure monitoring this wondering where they fit in with this whole thing and they have more money than god so who knows with them they might make a move same thing with apple i mean one of my favorite la rumors right now and i'm sure it's not true but it's just a fun one is that Disney's going to finish this Fox thing and then sell everything to Apple for like $250 billion or whatever the price would be. Um, I still feel like Apple and Amazon have to be heard from as this shakes out. What do you think there? I mean, Amazon has always been a threat. I've always always listed Amazon as Netflix's biggest threat because Amazon's perspective and approach to the market is is so different because they're they're not necessarily interested in making money directly on video they're interested in acquiring customers for years and so they take a very long-term view on the market which gives them a lot more it's the same thing netflix did to the other guys they just had a longer view of the market which meant they would pay different prices for different stuff in a way that the the traditional guys couldn't really understand or compete with and amazon has the potential to do the same thing with netflix over this past year though you've seen that's also sort of a constraint on amazon where they've kind of scaled back a little bit and started to really question like is this the absolute best application of our capital and i think they're really trying to go for this like we want one or two huge hits so that people have to sign up and i think they're taking less of a holistic we're going to be the home of entertainment in the Mm. long run which which probably makes sense and it's it's the same sort of thing with apple at the end of the day apple's not an entertainment company that's not what they do They, they you know they make personal computers like whether those be actual computers whether they be phones in your pocket or whatever the future might hold and i have a hard time believing that just because they have a lot of money and Apple has more money than anyone that I don't think that's necessarily sufficient. Like you need a mindset and focus and approach to actually succeed at this stuff. And I'm skeptical of, of Apple in particular, really adopting the sort of approach that will, that, that will pay off in the long run. I, I think Disney, I don't think, I think Disney is in it, is in it to win it. <laughs> and yeah. I think they're in a great place to do so. And I would expect it to shake out that Disney and, Netflix are the two that really matter. Amazon will probably hang around. They have the service. I don't think I don't think they're in it though to be the dominant player. I got to say same thing with Apple. I'm impressed by, you know, Disney really set themselves back there a couple years in a variety of ways. And over the last year they have addressed every long-range big picture issue they had, right? The one of them was our our tech stuff wasn't nearly good enough and now they they did the big thing with ESPN and BAM and all that stuff. Now they have the Netflix competitor, which allows them basically all of this different flexibility going forward with how the world's going. And then the third thing is the ESPN OTT app that nobody really understood what you were getting. It, it can't be anything that conflicts with the cable deals, all this stuff. Now they have these Fox RSNs, and I'm sure those are going to go in that app in some way on top of some of the other stuff they have and their library of things. And, you know, they have 90, 30 for thirties at this point, and all these other things that they can kind of shove in this OTT app that I'm still not positive. I want, but at least it's a little more interesting. Where do you stand on that? 
Yeah, it, I think that sports is just fundamentally different because sports are so expensive for one. I mean, sports make up between like 40 and 50% of what you pay in your cable bill today as it is. And if anything, that I think that proportion is only going to go up. If you're not interested in sports, there is the reason to subscribe to cable is is diminishing like super rapidly. But on the flip side, if you are interested in sports, the reason to subscribe to cable remain just as strong as they've ever been. Yeah. And I actually, you know, I've always thought that ESPN, yes, they spent all that money on rights a few years ago, but that was the exact right thing to do because the way you win going forward, the way you keep people, keep customers is having differentiated content. At the end of the day, like ESPN has the most and best differentiated content as far as as far as sports goes. And so I think they're in better shape than people give them credit for. But so I think this app is more about, it's more optionality. Like if they do need to abandon cable, then this will be an option where they'll have everything built in place and ready to go. But I think it's more likely that they, it's more additive, I think, to cable. Because again, that time thing is huge. There's so many sports all over the world. Like there's like cricket in India or there's like English Premier League soccer. And that's been a huge success for NBC buying up those rights. And I think that was, I wrote that a few years ago. There's a big miss for ESPN not to get those because that's the sort of sport you build a streaming service on like people who care about that really care and will pay a lot of money to get it and i think you'll just they can build up you know the the, the original plan was that espn 2 espn 3 espn 4 you've talked about espn ocho but that's actually viable there's so much yeah. stuff out there and the way the internet works is you don't win by s- serving like the general public you serve by finding these niches that people are just obsessed about this i mean that's the entire point of my business you find a a niche that people really really care about and then you charge them a lot of money and it's viable because you're actually serving the entire world you're not just serving a small geographic area or or even just a just a country and so i think it i think it's different than the disney deal i think disney is all in on this disney app and being a netflix style competitor and that yeah. is their future they, they will hold on to the cable revenue as long as they can but their future is this app whereas i think sports is the opposite i think cable remains the future as long as they can hold on and that's the right thing to do well and as you said this allows them to to basically put their feet in both both pools they they can build the ship that's the escape yacht if if cable just completely falls apart and they need to have their own app so they have that. But ideally, you would have both, and you would have two streams of revenue. And then really, if the third stream of revenue was worst-case scenario, they could eventually end up in this Disney, Fox, Netflix competitor app, like way down the road. Maybe they're part of this, and maybe it's a much bigger thing. I think they have so many more options than they did five years ago. And you know, and I, as I've said before, I was there five years ago, and I know they weren't thinking about this stuff. They just... I remember there were, I had one boss who, when the NBA deal was coming up, which I think was 2013 range, really wanted to get league pass as part of the deal. Just we take it, we own it, and it becomes ours. And, and in retrospect, that would have been unbelievable. Now, the NBA was smart enough. They had this guy, Bill Koenig, who's brilliant, who knew that league pass was like the future for them. And there was no way they were they – were, NBA was always going to control that. But – when you think about the last five years, where they were five years ago, where it's like, oh, they're going to pay us $10 million for all of our 30 for 30s and all of our Disney movies. Great, here, take it. Take it, Netflix. And then Netflix builds a whole business off it. I think I think they're seeing things pretty clearly now. And I think, you know, I don't really know the, what the tipping point would be for me to pay for an ESPN OTT app. But... It certainly is a little more interesting than it was six weeks ago, right? 
It's I, yeah. Well, it, the, I, there was no way I was paying for it before. To, right. And you'll definitely pay for the Disney app, right? So they're going to have a thousand you. million percent. <laughs> and this is the thing why I've always been optimistic about Disney. Like uh, back in 2015, when they had that earnings call, where Iger finally admitted that you know, yeah, ESPN is slipping a little more than we thought, and there's their stock tanked. I wrote an article saying that I actually am still optimistic about Disney in the long run because at the end of the day like great content still matters like differentiation yeah. still matters and yes disney didn't really figure this stuff out and i would argue as recently as nine to 12 months ago it still wasn't clear that they had really figured it out i don't think they but, did i i think yeah, they no, they were like figuring out this year yeah yeah it's it's been the last six months it's been incredible like honestly it's been incredible to see how rapidly they have completely shifted uh, uh, the way they're thinking about this stuff but what they've always had in their back pocket is they've had great content and and Iger went out and bought Pixar and went out and bought Lucasfilm and went out and bought Marvel and and did the, the inherent assets that Disney had and it was they just had to figure out how to leverage that and I, and they I think they now have they now have figured that out and that's a much better place to be than folks that are have middling content and also haven't figured out their business model. They're they're the ones that are really in trouble. And, and but Disney's always had that trump card. And uh, crap, we can't, the, the ruin the ruined word. Uh, Disney's always had that in their in their pocket, <laughs> and now they're figuring out how to use it. Well, I, I, I'm sure the most bummed out people right now are the ATT and Time Warner merger people because they had their own thing going on, and now that's been postponed yet again. And the, both companies have been just paralyzed in 2017 with. The potential of what they could be together versus kind of treading along until they have more information on where that's going. And, you know, we were talking about competitors and we we're talking, could Hulu be the third one? There's an AT&T, Time Warner something that I think could be involved too, especially with if, if they can get the phones involved and um, direct TV. And they're, they're, they just have a lot of assets and uh, and unfortunately they can't unveil the assets it's like this nba team that signed a bunch of free agents and everybody got hurt you know we don't, we don't know what it is what do you where do you see the future of that happening i mean it's a it's a much less compelling deal for for lots of reasons uh in part because the only way it really makes sense is if they sort of act illegally, which is why, you know, like there is actually a very valid justification for the Department of Justice suing to to block the deal. I mean, yeah. is it politically motivated? We don't know. But there there is a, a justification, which is they could, you know, jack up the prices on their content. And if if cable companies say, OK, we're going to black you out, then people are like, OK, I'm mean, going to get satellite. Well, who owns the satellite? Well, AT&T owns the satellite. Like, so this is kind of, you know, it, it's definitely in. It's definitely a pro something to be concerned about, but beyond that, it's it's really hard to see like if this future world is less about owning the pipes and more about owning sort of attention, where people come to you because you have great stuff and they want to get more stuff and they'll just like spend more and more time with you. Sure, HBO is great at getting people up front, and you know TNT has the NBA and stuff like that, but the sort of like long term value is I think much less compelling than. The, the Disney Fox, the Disney Fox tie up, which makes uh, to my, my mind makes much more sense, both in the, yeah. both in the short and medium term, but also particularly, particularly in the long run. I mean, ATD has some other stuff going on. Like they, like the, they have this dividend thing that, the, that they worry about covering and, and time Warner will help with that. Like there's lots of boring business reasons why they keep acquiring these, these companies with good cash flow, But, uh, but it's much less compelling. I think less interesting in the long run. And, and I think this deal shows why, like it, there's, it's so obvious what this deal is driving towards in a way that the AT&T Time Warner one is kind of still hard to figure out what's the point. Is there, you know, we're, we're hitting the end of 2017 here. 
Is there a loser? Is there somebody that just took a major step back this year out of all out of all these big companies that we discuss every time you come on? Is there somebody that you were like, wow, that was not a great 2017 for them? <laughs> you mean other than Uber? Well, yeah, yeah. I was talking I was talking more content. <laughs> yeah. Companies, yeah. Uber I, and I, Snapchat, I think, were the no. two that, you know, are the ones that obviously took major steps back. Yeah. Everyone that's not in everyone that we didn't talk about, Disney, Fox, and Disney, Fox, and Netflix are great, and everyone else is in significantly worse shape now, because for the reasons we just said, like there's only so many companies that I think are going to be successful in going direct. It's been the trend for a long time that the you know the sort of like Viacoms of the world that have traditionally had much higher ad loads and you know lower cost of content, like they've always they, the writing's been on the wall for that sort of model for a long time. Yeah, and it, like the world's been shifting to subscriptions away from advertising for years. I mean, this is the other reason why Disney's been in good shape. Like, how, why is Disney's cable network so profitable? It's not because of advertising. It's because of carriage fees. Like, carriage fees are basically subscription fees that they earn not directly from subscribers, but from cable companies. But why do they pay them? Because they have content that they have to have. So this, this focus on differentiation that consumers demand to have all the entertainment companies that have doubled down on that type of content are in so much better shape than the ones that have been much more sort of broad-based, low, low, low production costs, tons of advertising monetization. All those companies are in significantly worse shape than, than the, the differentiated ones, and that's Disney by and large. And I think Fox has also been really strong. You look at some of the stuff they're doing on FX, like, like Atlanta and uh, the Americans and stuff like that. All that stuff is right in the the – differentiation wheelhouse that that disney is building here and this other sort of more blase stuff that a lot of these other studios are doing is it's just going to be it's going to be facebook filler uh, i was going to ask you and then there's facebook we, we, uh, I, I hesitate to even mention them because they might have changed their content plan yet again <laughs> for one more time in 2017 uh your thoughts on facebook the last 18 months it's been, I mean, the, Facebook has been the dominant story of 2017, I think, by far. In, in part because they, people are appreciating more and more the role they played in 2016. And what's interesting, though, is a lot of that appreciation has been misplaced. I don't think, like, Trump didn't win because of Russian ads on Facebook. Like, that's just a, that's a very silly way to view what happened. I what agree. What is interesting, though, is what Facebook did do is Facebook destroyed media like they destroyed traditional media in the u.s and the reason that matters is media and political parties were two pieces were two they, they interacted they were tied together the reason why political parties mattered the reason why you needed them to for candidates to get get out there to become famous to get fundraisers all that sort of stuff was because the media controlled the choke point on awareness and people knowing who candidates were and what they stood for and so those two things were together what happened was the collapse of the media as a gatekeeper actually also meant the collapse of political parties as gatekeepers mm. which led to this new world where someone like trump could come along and already had his celebrity sort of built in and immediately get a sort of bully pulpit. And everyone's like, oh, why, why are the cable companies or why are the news companies showing Trump speeches? They're enabling him. No, they're responding. They have no choice but to show him because that's what people want. And the what the internet has really unlocked is this new world where 
you succeed by giving people what they want in a much more that's always been the case broadly but it's much more direct now like there's no sort of like choking off the distribution channel where you can kind of sit up there like an editor like sitting at the New York Times and you get to decide the news cycle for everyone that's that world is gone and Facebook is a big enabler of that and I think you know maybe the Russia thing is sort of a side note to that but it gets at something fundamental which is this company is like really changing the way changing the way the world works uh, meanwhile facebook you know i don't think none of this was intentional they're also busy figuring out how to make money and they're looking at google like they, they are obsessed with google always google has youtube which is the default place to upload all kinds of video it's getting tons and tons of advertising revenue like Go youtube is the real killer of a lot of this filler video that, that just goes there now and facebook wants a piece of that because video is Everyone looks at TV advertising like it's this it's at the pot at the end of the rainbow, like whenever that shifts to online, like we're going to make so much money and they're just scrambling, trying to build a product such that when that money shifts, it doesn't all go to YouTube, that they can get their their fair share of it. So, I mean, they're doing amazing, like they're, they're dominant, like they are they reduced the number of ads or not reduced the number of ads, but they stopped increasing the number of ads. Yeah. They just started jacking up prices instead. So their profits are still going to go up. And that's like a sure sign that they have market power. So they're in, they're in a dominant position, but you know, they are, they are both scrambling because that's what companies do. And also really under threat. And I think, uh, you know, the press cycle speaks for itself. I and I've also enjoyed they keep you on your toes as they change their content plan uh, every three months. Uh, Twitter, who both you and I were bullish on for a while, I feel like well, let's take our victory lap. The stock's up to like twenty five bucks, and people are starting to think Twitter knows what they're doing. Uh, you I, you I run we, ahead of I me. Let's take the lap. Them. I thought we ripped. I thought we ripped them pretty thoroughly. I, I believe we. Speaking of the bucks, I believe we compare them to the to the milky box in a negative way. But <laughs> earlier this year, but we talked about how. I think we talked. I thought I talked about it with you. I know I talked about it on this podcast about how I w was really impressed with our dealings with them, and just in general that they really seemed like they were starting to get their shit together. And I feel like the last, I don't know, six seven months, you can feel it and see it. And they still have a lot of issues with the trolling and the stuff like that. But from a content monetization standpoint, they made huge strides in two thousand seventeen. Yeah, I mean, what, what's so obvious about Twitter, and this has always sort of been the the core of the bull case for Twitter is it's so vital. I mean, yeah. like it's, it, there's nothing that can take the place of Twitter. And, and this drives Facebook up the wall, right? Even more than like Google, the fact that Twitter is out there and it's just kind of a mess of a company and the, the user base isn't that large, relatively speaking, but it's importance to like the world generally and the way it, you know, it's, it's, it, it's like the, it's the network of news. It's the network of everything that's happening in the world. And it's like irreplaceable in that regard. And, you know, to the extent they can figure out how to actually build a business on top of that, you know, is always sort of the open question, but that part's not going away. And that gives them, you know, a lot more runway than they probably deserve. Yeah. It's a one of a kindness that like with Snapchat, Instagram comes along and just takes Snapchat's best two ideas and adds them to what they already had, and all of a sudden Snapchat's reeling and completely changing everything they're doing. You can't do that with Twitter. There's no way to steal the la what the last 10 years that Twitter put together. You can't just come in and take the two best pieces of it. It's not happening. So yeah, There's something very essential to it. Yeah, and you're right. It's, it's a vital part of the day. It has its flaws like everything, but it always had upside. And there was always the potential, which is the same thing we talked about with Disney. It's like 
they still have really good assets. They still have a track record of going out and buying really big whatevers and then adding to their whatever and making a bigger whatever. And they've done it over and over again. And, uh, you know, I would say about Snapchat too. I mean, Snapchat's, I think, still has some aspect of that. It's not, Snapchat's not just about stories. I mean, I know. I think a lot of us old fogies came in and said, oh, the stories aspect is so obviously compelling. But the way that most kids actually use Snapchat is the chat. Like they actually just send all kinds of name stuff to each other constantly at all hours of the day. And that bit is still is still something that Facebook can still can't touch because Facebook has always had this sort of public performance aspect to it, and Instagram very much is still in that. You know, yeah. you, I think you've t- you might have talked about uh, your daughter. Parent Corner, by the way, is my all time favorite. I'm oh, so glad. You <laughs> thank you. The, I was so glad I did the episode with all Parent Corner. In it. <laughs> thank I, you. I listened, to, even though I listened to most. Of that, like, so I will admit, when I when you do the Monday morning things with Cousin Sal, I fast forward. I listen to Parent Corner first. It's, oh, that's great. It's, it's my favorite. <laughs> The uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on the Snapchat because it still has its little secrecy thing, and it's still it's basically an awesome camera, and uh, you can add special effects and stuff like that. But I do feel like Instagram, the secrecy that's going on with Instagram, and I, I see with my daughter where p- these kids all have three spam accounts now on top of their account, and their parents think they only have one account, but they really have four, and they don't know about the other three, and. You know, the DMs and they, there's ways you can sneak around in Instagram that make me nervous, but it's not like Snapchat. Snapchat is like one of, one of those uh, giant castles in England that you go in and you don't know what the rooms and how deep it is. Right. And you just don't even know where you're going. And well, the problem with Instagram is the back end is all tied to Facebook. So if you're an advertiser and you're even considering Snapchat, like, yeah, maybe Snapchat has more engagement with like these teenagers you want to reach, but Instagram's so much easier and we're already buying ads on Facebook and we, we, it's so easier to just plug into Instagram. Like that combination is just, it's from a monetization standpoint, it's really hard to compete with. And, and that's Snapchat's biggest problem. Snapchat decided to go public without actually having a business, which <laughs> turns out wasn't the, wasn't the best idea. But uh, I mean, so they're having a hard time, but that's, if they can, you know, I'm not throwing in the towel completely, although certainly it's it's looking very Twitter-esque, to say the least. Who has a better year in 2018, Uber or Airbnb? Oof. Uh, I mean, Airbnb... Airbnb is is kind of funny because Uber has gotten all the bad press and deservedly so. I mean, I'm not excusing anything that's gone on there and all the sort of shady stuff they've done. But if you back up and look at it from a societal standpoint, I think Uber is so much better than Airbnb. Yeah, Airbnb is basically turning what should be neighborhoods into like tourist areas. And who wants that? Like no one, no one wants like people's rolling their suitcases in every other day to the apartment across the road or, or, or the house next door. Whereas Uber, you know, reduces drunk driving, increases the ability to go out w- with people, makes it so much easier to enjoy parts of cities that you might have never even gone to or had access to. And but but on, on the, so I think the big question for Airbnb is at what point does that aspect sort of come home? And it's starting to like you can see they're actually having problems getting inventory more and more in these cities that are starting to crack down on, on Airbnb listings. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I think they'll probably have a better year just because Uber's in Uber's in a pretty bad shape right now. I mean, they, they are still very strong. Their brand is still very strong. Their user base is still larger. But 
you know, here in the U.S., Lyft has had a huge 2016 picking up, or sorry, 2017 picking up on Uber's mistakes. And worse, Lyft is now like an official partner with Google, both that they're partnering with Waymo, the self-driving stuff, but also Google just invested like a billion dollars in them. And that's really bad because the long-term future of this ride-sharing stuff is self-driving cars. And if you believe that Google is the furthest ahead, then where is that most likely to come to market? It's going to come to market with Lyft, which which may not happen for a long time, but what it means is Lyft will be able to earn money basically as long as they want, or sorry, will be able to raise money from investors as long as they want. Right. It's the best way to, it's the best way to invest in self-driving cars, which means Uber, the, they should have been able to spend Lyft into the ground. And now that's not going to happen. And that's, and that's leaving aside the rest of the world where they're kind of getting their rear and handed to them as well. So I would pick Airbnb, but I'm not sure it's going to be totally smooth selling for Airbnb in 2018 either. I didn't even realize Airbnb was having this kind of impact till Victor Luckerson wrote a great piece uh, for The Ringer about, I think it was Nashville, and how it's basically transformed part of Nashville and just turned it into this never-ending tourist den. And these people moved there because they liked the neighborhood and it was peaceful. And all of a sudden now, every week, it's a different party going on or whatever. And, and I'll be interested to see how it plays out. I don't really know if you can legislate Somebody turn letting other people live in their house. I think you can do it with condos and apartment buildings, but I don't think I don't think you can do it with houses. So we'll see what happens. Well, I mean, they're they're trying in San Francisco, so it'll be it's gonna be interesting to see good how luck. it turns out. Yeah, good yeah. luck. All right, we're at the <laughs> end of this. Goes a mess in general. We're at the end of this podcast, so I'm going to give you 60 seconds to complain about Jason Kidd. <laughs> Jason Kidd is the worst coach in NBA, and and. <laughs> And he gets so much credit, but really the improvement in the Bucks is Giannis. And and I want to focus on this point. People give Jason Kidd credit for Giannis. Jason Kidd has hurt Giannis. Like Giannis, particularly his shooting, Giannis was such a free and easy shooter his first year. Then he was barred from shooting three-pointers, and Jason said no more shooting. And basically he's become hesitant, and when he's hesitant, he he can't shoot well. You can see at the end of a shot clock when he just puts it up, his his actual motion is so much better. And you look at the Bucks generally – Every game, they have a different rotation. They change it constantly. There's no process. Not a good sign. There's no plan here. It's totally throw shit against the wall and see what sticks on not just a game-by-game basis, but literally a quarter-by-quarter basis. And if you have no consistency and no plan and no idea where you're going – you're just going to – all you're left with is talent. And so when the Bucks win, they win because Giannis is great. And when they lose, they lose because good coaches just pick them apart like you wouldn't believe. I mean, Giannis is having as a PR of over like 30. And uh, a guy with Bucks, all the Bucks, at all the Bucks, the best best follow on Bucks Twitter, charted out all the players that have finished the season above 31 or 32 PR, whatever Giannis is at. It's not they many. Were all, yeah, they were all either in the conference finals or in the NBA finals. And the Bucks are at 500. And you have to like, what's what's the hole here? And it, it's kid, and it's so frustrating as a Bucks fan because the national media just kind of drops in on the Bucks and they're not watching them on a game by game basis. But uh, I mean, I could I could go on for hours. Like he started. Here's here's one example: DeAndre Wiggins, who has been bouncing around the league because he's not good. He looks good because he like picks guys up forty feet away, but the yeah. defense is actually terrible when he's on the court. He <laughs> he played. He played a ton against the Pelicans. We, we're having a ton of injuries. I get it. It's hard. But the Bucks' best lineup with the injuries, which was, would be Bledsoe, Brogdon, Middleton, Giannis, and Henson. Because yep. uh, I mean, usually it'd be Snell, but Snell's out. 
uh, they played three minutes against the Pelicans, the last three minutes of the game. They didn't play together the rest of the game. We either had Gary Payton, the two, the second oh my God. Can't shoot, or DeAndre Wiggins, who was even worse, on the floor. And it's it's not just four on five. It's, it allows Giannis to be doubled basically the moment he crosses the half-court line. So, anyhow, I got to finish. I know going on in a minute. Against the Bulls, Wiggins was particularly bad. In two minutes, he had a minus 11. <laughs> the wow. Team minus 11 on the floor. And fortunately, he didn't play the rest of the game. Like I said, Jason Kidd, is, it's all responsive. So if he's bad in a couple minutes, he will get pulled for the rest of the game because he has no plan. So <laughs> what's the reaction? Against the Rockets, DeAndre Wiggins starts. <laughs> Who oh, <knows>? no. <laughs> and so he's minus 12 in like... 12, in like 15 minutes in the game, and the Bucks lose by seven. In the, these lineup decisions, it's all like, oh, J- James Harden's really good, so let's start Jordan Wiggins. There's no plan. It's all reactionary. It's like, almost like it sounds like hockey. Good. It's like, it, like I mean, a hockey coach. Well, the whole like, defense oh. thing. The whole defense thing. Everyone's getting credit. Oh, the Bucks are really long and rangy. If they do this high pressure turnover defense, like you never was like bought into the theory. But the reality for years has not worked. And the Bucks finally switched to a more conservative drop back on the pick and roll defense. Uh, I'm not sure if in, which Jason Kidd lied about and said they didn't. Uh, but he told a Utah sideline reporter that they had changed it. it was this, it's bizarre. The whole thing with this is the, this is the stuff. this is the deepest deep dive. I, I said 60 <laughs> seconds. You went like 300. I can't stop. I can't stop. <laughs> but, but but they finally changed. And guess what? The Bucks turnovers actually went way up that they that they did. Why? If you actually don't have guys running around with their head, with like chickens with their heads cut off, they're in a better position to use that length and athleticism to make great defensive plays. Mm. And and this whole like the theory and like, it's all like, oh, I can imagine how this might work. It's how he coaches and everyone buys into it in the, in the, in the media. But the actual results and process are totally lacking. This sounds like me when I f- was flipping out about how bad Doc Rivers was in 05, 06, and 07 and nobody <laughs> believed me. And then they got Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen and 17 role players, and we won 67 games. And people are like, see, Doc Rivers is a good coach. It's like, no, he's not. He's got an unbelievable team. He's not yeah. a good coach. And Giannis, I think he like, got better as it went along. Gian, Giannis, like Giannis has improved incredibly. Giannis would have improved no matter who his coach was. I mean, the guy's unbelievably driven. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, uh, close you know, Bucks fans were so in on him super early. And this yeah. guy was selling trinkets on the street like 10 years, yeah. 10 years ago. I it's mean, amazing the guy story. has unbelievable drive. And he is going to make himself the greatest player that he can be. I have no doubt. Like, I believe I, I, Giannis has the potential to be in the GOAT conversation in the long run. I'm not saying he's going to be, but he, he has the physical tools and he has the drive. This and, is and so frustrating. This is everything I wanted. That now- <laughs> I knew you would take it up to eleven out of ten, and you did. Now, now Giannis is the goat. This is the best. No, he's not. The no, goat. I like no, it. Ha- I, I, I might agree. I, I'm, I'm with you. I love it. You frazzled uh, me with the sixty seconds. I, I, I actually was thinking about this. I wanted to have a clear, coherent case about why Jason Kidd is a bad coach that I could finally drop in the BS report. And you I, said sixty seconds. I got frazzled. I just started spewing stuff out <laughs> over the place. You fired up threes. <laughs> I will say it was easier to play you guys without Greg Monroe, who Celtic killer. And uh, and just that low post guy. If if we got to go, but if I if I ran the Bucks, I would put Giannis at center. I don't know if I would do it this year because I w- wouldn't want to put the miles on him because you guys aren't going to win the title anyway. But long term, him at center with the right team around him is just terrifying because he can protect the rim. You wouldn't lose anything. Oh, he's an incredible rim protector. Yeah, yeah. and he he's he, he's not a. This is something that people miss. Like uh, he's not a great wing defender. Like he's not right. a one on one guy. His lateral quickness is actually not that. That's his biggest weakness. But as a weak side defender and a help defender, I mean, he's unbelievable. He's the I he's mean, the, the best. 
Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, all right, do a quick plug for your newsletter. Uh, Stratechery is a strategy and tech together. You just search for Ben Thompson. It's the easiest result. We had a discussion last time about how you spent months thinking about the Ringer name. Uh, yeah. And I probably should have done the same thing. But yeah, Ben Thompson and I write one free article a week. So you can get that or you can sign up for $10 a month and get an extra three articles uh, sent to your email inbox every morning. I've been reading for a couple of years. I tried to hire you. Um, I, I love reading your stuff. I think uh, I think it's great. I think it's essential. And it was an especially fun year in 2017 to read it. Thanks for coming on. Talk to you soon. Talk to you later. Thanks so much to Brian Curtis. Thanks to Ben Thompson. Thanks to SeatGeek. Don't forget, $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on NBA tickets. Use promo code BSNBA. Back Friday with one more BS podcast. Until then.